Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, and I'm your host, and we're usually... We would be going through the Book of Song of Solomon. If you've been following the podcast for a while, that's where we have been. But we will be taking a brief pause from that exposition this week. Um, this is something that I do on occasion uh, to uh, um, get out of the the routine a little bit. And so we're going to be considering a passage from Proverbs 3. And to further shake things up, I will be doing so out of the King James Bible Um just because of the way it captures the poetry, and I'm um, honestly I'm a big believer in using other translations. Sometimes that there's um, something to be said about getting out of our comfort zone a little bit, and I have greatly benefited from doing so with the King James. And so I'd like to share some of what I've seen from Proverbs three this morning. And so taking a pause from the Song of Solomon we turn our eyes to Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It is practical, it is theological, it is poetic. It's altogether a different meal from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, as fantastic of a book as it is, it's largely not poetry. It's more narrative and law. But Proverbs is, is poetry. Um, Song of Solomon is poetry. But this is a different sort of poetry. Um, it still follows like the parallelism and some of what we've talked about in Song of Solomon. But Proverbs, it, it's just different. And much of uh, what is in the book of Proverbs is attributed to Solomon. Um, um, Solomon actually states his purposes in chapter 1. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity to give subtlety to the simple, and to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear, and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that's kind of, that's a phrase that occurs a lot is the fear of the Lord. And in um, for verse 7 of chapter 1, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 9, verse 10, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 15 says that the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. And so, thus, we have a presupposition of the fear of God as the starting point for true wisdom and discipline. But the fool is characterized as the one who does not fear God and despises wisdom by despising the source, which is God's holy character. Romans 1 tells us that though they knew God, speaking of the unrighteous, the unjust, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And it became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, that claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because wisdom comes from God, so when we reject the source, we're rejecting wisdom as well. James 1 tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, to ask God for it. Because God is the source. God is where wisdom comes from. He is the fountain. And so for us to truly drink wisdom is to know God. And that is where Proverbs comes in, is wisdom comes from God. This is God's character. And the, the wisdom that we apply to our lives ultimately flows from godly character. Um, Raymond Ortland, in his commentary on Proverbs, he puts it this way, it's the practicality of the book of Proverbs that some people underestimate. This book is indeed practical, but it is not simplistic or moralistic. What God is going after through this book is to change, is change deep inside our hearts. His wisdom sinks in as we mull over these biblical Proverbs slowly and thoughtfully. We need multiple exposures over time. This book is not a quick fix. It is ancient wisdom from long human experience endorsed by God himself. If we will pay close attention, God will graciously make us into profound people. And so the first nine chapters of Proverbs consist of a sort of monologue to that end, from Solomon to those he addresses as his sons. And as a type of Christ in the Old Testament, we see Solomon as speaking to the sons of God in a way that this is not merely the wisdom of Solomon, but the wisdom of Christ. Um, Jesus Christ himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, expounded to his disciples all things concerning himself. So when we come to Proverbs, we are aiming to have the same view of Scripture that Christ had, that it is all pointed to him. And so now, the proverb Verse 7 through 12. It says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. And so it starts with, Be not wise in thine own eyes. And that calls to mind the book of Judges, which uses the phrase of so often, In those days Israel had no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So right off the bat, we have this juxtaposition of our eyes with God's eyes. And that line, be not wise in thine own eyes, calls to mind what went wrong in the book of Judges. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and therefore wisdom. Then the folly of Israel in Judges 6 was being wise in their own eyes. And so this is pointed out to us in Proverbs very clearly. Don't do that. Don't make the mistake that was made by Israel in Judges. Learn from this error and do not be wise in your own eyes. Jeremiah 9 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord, saith the Lord, sorry. And the King James Version uses glory as a verb here. And that's one of the peculiarities, I think, of the King James, is that glory is a verb. Um, the Hebrew word there is shine. And the King James renders the phrase this way in an endeavor to preserve the poetic illustration of, quote, glorying in our own wisdom, in shining our own preconceived notion of what light is. And I think that might be the best way to do it in terms of the poetry and the, the meaning of the words. Um, Charles Spurgeon once put, you will never glory in God until you cease glorying in yourself. And we understand that. That, that makes sense. So we have, a, we have a bit of a dichotomy here. Our attempt at wisdom versus God's sure wisdom. Be not wise in thine own eyes. And do what? Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Adam was given a similar choice in the garden. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat. You are free to eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The Hebrew literally says, Dyingly, you will die. And so again, the moral imperative is presented. Does God know what he's doing? Does God know what he's talking about? And one of the marks of Proverbs is a sense of order to things. That these are natural patterns to the world that God has made. For our God is a God of order. It says in Colossians that by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, as the King James says. Other translations say, in him all things hold together. So in other words, wisdom and goodness are alien concepts. Alien in the sense that they do not derive from us. Nor do they occur naturally in us since the fall of Adam. Whatever wisdom is described by Solomon is a foreign wisdom. A wisdom that is given to us by God. And that wisdom is beneficial to us. Um, Martin Luther used similar phrasing to describe righteousness as an alien righteous, a foreign righteous, um, a righteous that is extra nost, to quote the Latin, it is outside of us. And so this is the kind of wisdom that is pleasing to God. The true wisdom is from God. And so for us to be wise is to know God. Let no man glorieth in his wisdom. Let the wise man 
not glorieth in his own wisdom, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me, that I am God, who exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And so, we are exhorted to be wise in the eyes of God and fear God and depart from evil. And what is the product of that? It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Those are, that's a strange way to put it in our modern vernacular, but navel is belly. In that Jewish way of thinking, belly, that's the center of your being. That Where we would say, use your head or use your, uh, use your head, they would say, stomach. That gets more to the heart of your physical being is the stomach. That's why it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Because he's in the he's in the center. He's enveloped in it. And so when we say it should be health to thy navel, there is an element of understanding that this is wisdom that cuts to the very core of our being as people. Further quantify it by it shall be marrow to thy bones. That is getting down into the midst of things. This is d illustrating for us an all-consuming wisdom that benefits our very being. This isn't just head knowledge. but This is something that affects everything. Not in the sense that if we um, act, act like we know everything, that we will make ourselves healthy. Um, while there's definitely an element of taking care of our bodies, What's being illustrated here is not prosperity in that sense. It is God is good for all of you. And all of you is his. Proverbs 4 says, My son, attend to my words, and incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. It says in Deuteronomy, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. And that is where we are right now in Proverbs, is do we go the way where good things abide? Do we go, do we follow God's way, God's will? Or do we try to make do on our own, which ultimately brings condemnation and sin and eventually death? Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Continuing the statement, Solomon moves from an inward disposition to outward actions. Because wisdom is not knowledge, which is knowledge, but is action. The word chokmah is skill. It's skill must be used. It's, it's an action. And so this is different from the so-called prosperity gospel. Because Solomon's not promising riches when he says, Thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. He's not promising riches, he's promising sustenance. He's promising things that we need. Things that were considered staples in that context. Matthew Henry puts it this way, He does not say thy bags, but thy barns. Not thy wardrobe replenished, but thy presses. God shall bless thee with an increase of that which is for use. Not for show or ornament, for spending and laying out, not for hoarding and laying up. They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. In this context, wine was a sacrificial item. While there was certainly an enjoyment component, wine was largely used for sacrifices and offerings. 
This is not a proverb describing lavish expense, but having needs met by God. Because everything we have and everything we are is God's. And the outward, in this sense, reflects an inward disposition. One commentator writes that, For we have in our conscience an uncorrupt and true judge who, when all other things are wrong, is the only person not deceived as to the state of our purity. It says in Hebrews that he is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged two sword, that he divides between bone and marrow. He, he's not fooled if we keep up appearances. If, if we are making a, an omelet with fresh vegetables and rotten eggs, God is not fooled by the fresh vegetables that he forgets the rotten eggs. God knows it all. God knows every fiber of our being, even the parts we don't want him to know. So we're not fooling anybody when it, where it matters. We're not fooling God when we think we've created a good life for ourselves. We're not fooling God when we store things up. Because ultimately, God gave it to you. The reason you have what you have is God. And that is, that is a worldview shift that bears a lot of weight to it. When we sit as Job did and say that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, we recognize that we are bookended by the sovereignty of God, in, both in his giving and in his taking. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 says, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor, that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. That the to enjoy what you have, to some extent, is the gift of God. To thank God for what he's given you is a gift of God. But there's more to it than that. Because while we've got the good stuff, we've got the gifts of God. Look down at verse 11. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. John Knox once said that a mark of the sons of God is the ability to recognize both adversity and calamity as the gifts of God. The life that God calls his people to is neither easy nor safe. The call of Christ is antithetical to the call in the world in this respect. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Luke 9.23-25 The call of Christ is this. Come and die. Ouch. 
George Whitfield once commented, Whoever reads the gospel with a single eye and sincere intentions will find that our blessed Lord took all opportunities of reminding his di disciples that his kingdom was not of this world, that his doctrine was the doctrine of the cross, and that their professing themselves to be his followers would what would call them to a constant state of voluntary suffering and self-denial. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the, a father, the son in whom he delighteth. How do we make that transition? How do we bridge this gap from verse 10 to verse 11? How do we go from, Thy barns shall be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine, to, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 11 says, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap, as though thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. We can't discern from a place of human reason how this transition takes place. It does not make sense in a human mind. This book we call the Bible has to be read with a spiritual eye, discerned with a, with a spiritual mind. How does God provide and chasten the same party? Because he loves them. Ecclesiastes 3 says, To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under the heavens goes on to say that he has made all things beautiful in his time. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Recall, this is part of a monologue um, of Solomon addressing his sons. And again, he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament, so this is Christ addressing the sons of God. As many have received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we are his sons in the story. We are the sons in the story being addressed by God. And he says, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Our pursuit of God cannot be solely based on our feelings at the moment. Because feelings lie. And while there is absolutely an element of emotions, that you can't read the Psalms without having some kind of emotional response to those words, to these praises. But we're, we're not, but emotions are different from emotionalism. Because there are going to be times when our feelings lie. When we suffer, when we experience the rod of his chastening, there are going to be times when our feelings lie to us. And that is where, as I like to say, the rubber meets the crooked road. This is where the feelings and the facts don't necessarily line up. Because it doesn't feel good to be disciplined by God. But nonetheless, we know that it's good, because God is good. Ecclesiastes 7.13, one of my favorite pieces of Hebrew poetry, says, Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Who can straighten what God has made crooked? 
that is the harsh reality of the chastening of God is that we are not the determinant here we are not in control of this scenario we are along for the ride in a sense of speaking but when we are chastened it directs our eyes to something greater Isaiah 53 says that he being Christ was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed the father did not spare his own son but gave him up to chastisement that his death would atone for sin and reconcile many to himself so then the chastisement of God on our account accomplishes three things among others but these are the three big ones it confirms our spiritual sonship it confirms our adoption as the sons of God it directs our eyes to the sufferings of Christ in whom we are justified when we are chastened when we are admonished it draws our eyes to the sufferings of Christ the greater sufferings of Christ in a sense we are united in Christ through his suffering so we may suffer with him as well number three it produces in us Christ likeness that we may be glorified in Christ in paradise Romans 8 says that those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren those he predestinated he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified them he also glorified that's that's the pattern here is God's sovereignty in calling us in justifying us in conforming us to the image of the son and part of that um, involves hard things because if Christ suffered for us to be Christ-like would not necessarily mean to have a better life than our Savior we live in a world that crucified our Lord and that reality rings true to us every day regardless of your eschatology regardless of where you sit on the rapture and the millennial kingdom and where you sit with the 50,000 charts this world does not know God this world has not received God he came to his own he came to Jews he came to his kinsmen and his own did not receive him but as many as did receive him he gave them the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood not of the will of the flesh not of the will of man but of God and so if we are if we have a union with Christ in his life we also have union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection that the cross becomes comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning so what do you do now you take your cross and you walk with him Tertullian put it this way if we believe some blow of misfortune is struck by God to whom would it be better that we manifest patience than to our Lord in fact more than this it befits us to rejoice at being deemed worthy of divine 
chastisement. This is where the call of Christ does not jive with the call of the world. This is a worldview that does not make sense to the world, to rejoice in suffering. To rejoice because it will make us more Christ-like. This is the marriage between verse 9 verse nine and 10 and verses 11 and 12. Is that we have honored the Lord with thy substance and with all thine increase, and your barn shall be made shall be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine and then it goes despise not the chastening of the Lord neither be weary of his correction that the end goal here is not to give us stuff is not to make us rich that's not the purpose of God's wisdom the God's God's purpose of the purpose of God's wisdom is to cultivate in us godly character is to make us more like Christ not in the sense that we transcend Christ not not like that, but in the sense that we imitate God. We bear his image as we were intended to do so in the garden when he made male and female in his image. And so the sufferings of the flesh bring us closer to that image by weeding out the bad by shaving off the rough edges and smoothing out the stone I have on my desk this rock and it's very smooth and the reason it is smooth is not because that is natural there was there was a number of opposition that this rock had to endure there were forces that came against this rock why that's just the course of life it's, that's the way things are but all that abrasion, all of that opposition, just broke off the, the loose bits, and the rock has become smooth. Such is the chastening of God, that it shaves off the, the rough edges, it shaves off the loose bits, and it further solidifies what remains. That we may be further united in Christ in his life, in his suffering, in his death, and eventually in his resurrection, when we are raised in new bodies, glorified bodies, to dwell in his immediate presence forever. And so, in conclusion, let us consider the text one more time, in context. Backing up to verse 1. My son, for, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So thou shalt find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel, and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So th shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father the Son in whom he delighteth.
pursue God. Know God. Repent of sins. Fear the Lord and repent of your sins. Turn from evil. Trust in the face of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ. That he died. He, ex he was... He endured the chastening of God. That the Father poured out chastisement and wrath on his own Son. Why? That we would be reconciled to him. That we may become the sons of God. And in... In good times and in hard times, that is still true, that we are the sons of God, if we be in Christ. And regardless of where that takes us, in prosperity and adversity, it means that we are His. Come join the family today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4.4. 4.